Conversations with Bill and Dan, episode 44, for Tuesday, July 5th, 2011. Yes. Dan, uh, we have a guest today. We do. Would you like to introduce him? I would love to introduce him. We uh, are joined this evening by my old friend, Jason Hinkle. Uh, Jason currently resides in Chicago, although you're not calling from Chicago, right? You're in Indiana? That's right. Home with the folks. Nice in the in the in the wondrous land of yeah Kokomo Indiana Kokomo right in the middle of the state oh, that's awesome <laughs> I know <laughs> hey can I just interject one small thing I had a discussion about this last weekend oh. how long do you have to know somebody before they're an old friend Oh, uh, that's a good question I, I would say anything more than ten years okay Jason yeah. would you agree ten years yeah I don't know but you could maybe some people would go five but uh, yeah ten is definitely old friend material I think. Yeah. All right. Okay. So Sorry. that's a good segue. Uh, I figured it'd be. Uh, I'll I'll just introduce Jason a little bit here. Um, I met Jason just maybe for dr- the the drama for the drama's sake. I'll say in the year two thousand <laughs> um, <laughs> or thereabouts. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, I was in Chicago. Jason was in Chicago, and he was playing in a band called the Baldwin Brothers. And uh, I was introduced to this band by a, a sort of a friend of a friend, and um, I was just really blown away. You know, really impressed with their performance and the tunes, and uh, it was it was just really fresh and 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 cool stuff. And and I became sort of like a super fan, and just wound up going to like every single show that they played. And after every show, I would you know go and introduce you know ha- introduce myself and shake the guy's hands and try to hang out and this and that. And um, and yeah, that, I mean that's that's kind of how we officially met, and then and then sort of one day, uh, I, I mean I I, it, I guess I'd known them for about a year or so, and just sort of out of the blue, it felt like out of the blue to me, uh, Jason like appeared at one of my shows uh, in a band that I was in, and I I don't remember <laughs> even inviting him or whatever, but he just he sort of showed up and then sort of round roundabout kind of asked me if I would be interested in joining the Baldwin Brothers as uh, as a drummer. Which now I, I saw some of this. You showed me some of the video of these guys. You guys, yeah. it's a sort of a uh, uh, the instrumentally uh, kind of groovy pocket stuff, right? That's right. Okay, got it. Now, yeah. Jason, what did you play in the band? Um, actually, interestingly, I started on the drums, but uh, I couldn't really hack it because I was more of a bass player. So yeah, that's how I wound up, um, you know, meeting Dan because we needed a drummer because I, I pretty much sucked at the job. So uh, <clears throat> you actually, you, for, a, for a non-drummer dude, you held it down pretty damn good, if you ask I, me. I figured out a few tricks. I had a, I had a bag of, of a very uh, small number of tricks that I could do, but that was about it. Mm. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I was playing drums at first and then bass, but basically it was uh, a very sample-oriented kind of music, so... Uh, me and uh, the other guy in the band, his name is TJ, would do just all, you know, all kinds of instruments and mixed in all, with all kinds of stuff, and then we would sample that and rearrange it and cut it up. So, you know, it was not not necessarily traditional instrument lineup. Sure, absolutely. 
Yeah, it was uh, it was very loop centric. Um, one of the cool things about Jason's drum set, uh, and this is one of the things that sort of attracted to me at the time because I was just getting into this myself, was uh, his, he played basically like a like a little three piece drum set with a drum cat. Um, sitting right on top, like where where the tom tom would be, uh, with the cute little b- mouse Mickey ears. Mouse, yeah, the Mickey Mouse <laughs> thing, exactly. And and he had that hooked up to an old, I'm guessing it was an Akai something or other. Uh, we went through several iterations of samples. An S nine thousand. You know, I don't even remember what it was, but I hate I, I hated everything that we ever used. Like none of them ever worked reliably. Um, All those old samplers were such a nightmare. Yeah. Oh my god. Well, we had the 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 worst of them was um, I, we actually built a, for some reason I was obsessed with everything being in rack mount just for I guess to look cool, and so we I bought this <laughs> I bought this rack mount server, and uh, I thought man this is going to be super cool, and uh, when we got it it was like did you, did you ever see that thing it was it was like the the deepness of it it was. Like three like, feet. It was like a full depth. Like a full depth. So for, yeah, full depth. Yeah, it rack. didn't fit into any of our racks. It didn't fit into any music rack. And so we had to build this custom rack, and it just turned into this. Uh, it took two people to carry it. It was ridiculous. It was stupid. <laughs> and it was probably loud as hell, too, right? It had fans and shit. Uh, yeah, I don't, that probably didn't really matter. With, but uh, we used this card called Sample Cell. Which was this? Cool, oh, sample cell. Sure. Yeah, it was this crazy old. Uh, probably cost like two thousand dollars, and then I think I saw it on eBay for like fifteen dollars recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, very sad. Uh, but that yeah. stuff is really sad. <laughs> it's true. That was the that was the worst, and I believe uh, I think to even make matters worse. <clears throat> no, I don't. Did you ever see that one, Dan? I don't remember if we had a. Oh yeah, I had this little screen. The computer had a little screen in the rack too, and that's what I thought was so cool about it. But oh no, I didn't see that. I remember, you know, I saw the the, the remnants of the chat of the like the wooden rack mount chassis that yeah, you built y- for we it. we chopped we chopped it in half like uh, depth wise and made two normal racks out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Um, so anyway, yeah. So so Jason was basically triggering um, the different loops for the different sections of the song. Um, which you know came off really really well, um, and and the, you know the rest of the band would play along. And, the, and the, just for everyone else who's not familiar with the band, the lineup was basically uh, TJ playing keyboards. He had a Rhodes uh, Rhodes electric piano, which he played through a, a, a nice old Fender amp, along with a, a, a synthesizer. And then um, we also always had a, a DJ who would uh, scratch records to you know that kind of had their special samples that went along. With with the tunes. Oh, and then there was a and then there was a bass player. So it was basically bass drums, keyboards, and turntables. Got it. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, th- we we could talk about the Baldwin Brothers forever, but I think there's more interesting things. We to talk will about. put links in the show notes and play some music. Maybe yes. we'll even interject music into right here. Cool. Well, you know, actually, yeah, I'm I'm actually there's a I've been wanting to update our uh, our theme music for the for the podcast, and okay. I and, and maybe I think we'll swap of, it out today. Yeah, one of the Bald Baldwin tunes, um, I think, is, is is a good fit for an opening theme sort of sound. Cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Anyway, so that's how we met, and um, <coughs> as as I got, you know, I once I joined the band uh, and we started hanging out and getting to know one another, uh, I found that Jason was as big a uh, as a computer nerd uh, as me, but he was a full you know full full fledged tried and true Windows user. And it just blew me away how much of this cool stuff he was doing, because everybody else I'd ever seen that did cool stuff like that was doing it on a Mac. Um, but Jason was rocking it uh, Windows styly. 
Pretty much anything you can do on a Mac, you can do on Windows. Well, you know this, that, this was like 10 years <laughs> ago, and I was still coming off of my, you know, jaded bigotry and what have you. Um, <laughs> now now I don't care. It's all the same to me. It's just a yeah. tool. But, you know, it was it was still, I was really impressed. Um, and uh, And I guess... You remind me, Jason. Were you were you work? You weren't still programming back then, were you? Were you working as a freelancer or what? Uh, yeah, I've been. Yeah, I've been programming for you know since I was a kid. So I was. Yeah, I was. Uh, what was I doing then? Yeah, I was a full time programmer uh, at that time. Or I think we had just quit our jobs. Um, yeah, I feel like you and T- TJ just quit and was doing the freelance design thing, and then you uh, you just. I think you took your very simple thing to that to that next level. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We had just quit our regular gigs, uh, which I was doing programming for. Oh, what was I doing uh, for the insurance industry, actually? And what kind of languages? Uh, that well, I've done a bunch of stuff, but I was doing Java for um, working with you these. Know, big it's funny how many server side stuff. Uh, yeah, but I yeah I've done a bunch of I've done like way too much stuff. I'm like the jack of all trades, master of none kind of guy. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's just funny because I know a lot of people who end up doing like server side Java stuff for insurance companies. Yeah. <laughs> for some reason, I know like four people who do that. <laughs> That's it. Must be like one of the big uses. Of yeah, it, it pays well. I think too. That's the nice thing about yeah. it. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's why they do it. <laughs> so I had yeah, I quit that. I uh, but I I've done you know I was really a Windows dude for sure. I was doing um, like C sharp development, writing Windows apps, and writing stuff for um, gosh, like starting all the way with uh, like real early ASP uh, Windows, sure. you know, server thing, and that turned into uh, .NET. So yeah, I was I was a hardcore Windows guy. <clears throat> well, Visual Studio and C plus, C sharp and all the rest of it are supposed to be fair. I mean, they, they Microsoft does programming environments pretty well, from what I understand. Yeah, I love. You know, I actually continued even after I switched to Mac. The reason I switched to Mac originally was just because, um, you know, you could run Windows on a Mac virtually, and you couldn't you couldn't right. do the reverse. And I wanted to be able to test for both, and so it just made sense. I'd buy the one that I could run both systems on, you know, obviously. Sure. And uh, But for the longest time, uh, as Dan probably remembers, I booted it up into Windows all the time. I never used right. the Mac. And then I switched over to Parallels when that came out. So I really weaned my – I kind of got weaned off of Windows. I think that must be like, uh, you know, Apple's plan, devious plan all along. And sure. I totally <laughs> fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> Sucker. Yeah. But I, I did for the really long – I went to Parallels. I'd open up, I'd use Visual Studio, and I was using Outlook, and then eventually I was like, well, I'll give this, like, mail thing a try, you know, and uh, mail and... Comp- no, dude, it was iChat. It, I think it was iChat that was the bait, the the thing that really stuck in That might, Yeah, that might have been it, too. But I know, I remember when I switched my, um, my organizer from Outlook, and I was way heavy into Outlook, like the um, task manager and stuff. I used it to plan my whole business and everything, and uh, when I switched from that to the built-in OSX products... As soon as I made this switch, and after about a week in that, I, I was like, I don't need to run Windows anymore. And yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it was weird. No, it's completely weird. You know, I moved from Outlook and just put everything up into Google, ah, <laughs> up into Google even Apps. Better. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> then it's then I'm completely platform agnostic in many ways. You know, because almost everything I use is in a browser except for Photoshop. Nice, um, which could work either way. But it's you know, it's interesting. 
that you can do that. The only problem with running Windows on a Mac, at least on the laptops, is that the power management is not as good, so your battery life kind of suffers compared to using it as a Mac. Hmm. Have you noted? Did you notice that when, at all? When I was booting it into like boot camp with Windows, if you're, yeah, uh, exactly. it's been a while, so I don't remember. And that was several laptops ago, so I can't remember for sure. That is that is a fair thing, yeah. But apparently, you know, because one of the the advantages that Apple has is that they they know the hardware so well that they can do all kinds of neat little tricks, power management wise. You know, that somebody trying to make a uh, generic operating system cannot do. Yeah, hmm. that you know, and parallels actually. You know what? It, uh, oh no, that's no way we were talking about boot camp. Yeah, you're probably uh, you're probably right on the money there. I know when Parallels is yeah. running that the CPU is always, you know, like just rocking away at almost 100. Uh, yeah. Like it takes up all the spare cycles. So whenever Parallels was running, the battery would just drain super fast. It's uh, I'm cu- currently using VMware Fusion. Oh yeah, uh, to do the same thing. But I, you know, I don't ever do the stuff where it can merge Windows between the two things. I just have it basically boot Windows Seven in a window, uh, if I ever need to go in there. Right. Yeah. I, 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 I sort of wrote. Um, I feel like I can take like a teeny tiny bit of credit um, in parallels. I don't know. This probably they were probably working on this way before I came along. But anyway, uh, I started running parallels, and I was, you know, still programming at the time, and I wrote this little um, listener that you could launch Windows apps from the dock. Um, and now, of course, that's like not even that interesting because all, they right. all do that. But at the time, none of them did. And I remember it got picked up by like dig.com, which was really huge then. And it got picked up by Lifehacker sure. and a whole bunch of stuff, this little thing that and I it crashed every site you had it on. <laughs> it did. It was funny, actually. The uh, Yeah, the, the site stats were like this massive spike. It was, it was... Sure. So, yeah, I had like, uh, you know, my 15 seconds of fame on that little subject. <laughs> and uh, and in the next version of Parallels, they totally had all of that stuff in there. So you know, was yeah. it inspired by me? We'll never know. <laughs> you know, it was funny on one of uh, on uh, Hypercritical. Do you, you, Dan? Do you listen to Hypercritical? I do. Uh, where John Sarkisa was saying that like it was because of him that Apple came out with the Apple lossless format. Oh, really? Because he complained to Steve Jobs in an email or something. It was, <laughs> I'm sure. It, yeah, it was just some ridiculous thing. But yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> but so you, you're not uh, programming anymore, Jason? Uh, no, yeah, I'm still doing full time uh, programming. Now, n- now, but now you're programming in uh, in Objective C. Um, actually, we are doing all of our stuff in. Uh, this is like uh, it's embarrassing almost because everybody hates Flash, but we're doing everything using Air. Okay. So our app is written in uh, using ActionScript 3, uh, Adobe sure. Air. Um, we made the choice a couple of years ago. It was kind of looked like the best cross-platform cl- cl- choice at the time. Regret it sometimes now, but uh, it still works for us pretty well. So, Well, now, but now you can jump and make a version for Android, make a version for theoretically windows phone 7 is that possible oh yeah or is there uh, is there an air client for that yeah actually um that was our de- that's our desktop client that i'm talking about and we oh okay. we do mobile apps as well and we did uh an initial version of we sort of started off with an initial objective c thing which i did right and i'm really i'm still just fighting the objective c thing i just can't get into it uh, it's a pretty ugly language, I right? Just, I don't like. Or you have to do your own garbage collection. It's kind of not very uh, high level. It's just yeah. It's it's 
it's different than I'm used to, and it's got you have to memorize just a ton of library stuff. And I've just I think I've reached that stage where I'm it's harder for me to just pick up something totally new because I'm just sure. like oh I don't want to go like read all these books again um, <laughs> because you're old <laughs> because I'm old and tired and I already know how to do everything I need to do in other languages. Um, yeah. So so um, but, before before we continue, um, I think we we should um, give the the listeners a little bit more of a of a history here. Um, okay. Because you know, uh, not everybody knows where, where how Jason got to where he is today. So, um, we've we've established Jason um, has been a programmer for you know basically his whole life. But um, in addition to being a musician, um, well, let's the Baldwin brothers kind of um, slowed down to the extent that we just sort of stopped performing altogether. Uh, and I, I I think I can take partial responsibility for that fact having moved from Chicago to New York. Yeah, that didn't help um, matters much. <laughs> yeah, it didn't help. But at the same time, I mean, we, we, we definitely, you know, things had slowed very, you know, very much down, but, you know, the year oh, yeah. before I, I actually left anyway. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you guys, I think that was right around when you guys bought your first house and TJ just got married and, yeah. you know, you guys were starting to move on with your adult lives. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were, we were at the point where we were, um not rehearsing anymore so when we did play it was just rehashing and it felt like yeah it felt like the end yeah uh good times but uh but moving on so so um and i guess while you while i was in the band anyway for for that you know now we're in i guess in you know 2003 2004 ish uh you started doing freelance work uh and that's how you got involved with your current uh employer or well why don't you Why don't you tell that story, Jason? Because that's a that's a cool that's a cool story. Um, sure. Yeah. So I was basically just doing consulting, you know, basically freelance programming, and I got hooked up with a couple of firms, like some design firms and some marketing firms, that would um, just send me work, and I started getting um, so much work. I needed an office, and started to need to bring people on, and I was introduced to these guys that were doing this tour management database essentially it was written in filemaker pro and it was a oh god <clears throat> yeah and it, it was a yeah. database that was written uh originally by uh this guy's name's ian and he's the uh monitor engineer for dave matthews band so that's his full-time gig and he just was into he wasn't really a programmer or anything like that but he learned how to use filemaker and he made this just really 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 intensely detailed database to track every aspect of touring for an arena level band so it's just stuff that you know i had never you know even in all of my experience playing in music i had never seen this level of detail um like what what are we talking about here give us some um just you know huge amounts of fields for tracking um uh measurements of like stage dimensions um you know, d- just equipment that I didn't even know what it was relating to electricity and, <laughs> you know, uh, things like hotels with that that have tour bus parking, you know, for 12 buses, uh, so things ev- like every that. Every possible <clears throat> permutation of logistical stuff for a stadium-sized tour. Right. And, yeah, and accounting, like huge scale um, settlements. Now, is this the kind of thing that who, – who on the tour would actually be using it? So the Dave Matthews Band, uh, it depends. Um, like somebody like the Dave Matthews Band, that size of a band, they 
they travel with about 35 people. So the mm-hmm. biggest that I've really heard... Wait, but that that's just the band, isn't uh, it? Yeah. <laughs> and no. their guest performers, exactly. <laughs> um, they do... Uh, I think 50 is the biggest I've, I've ever really heard of, and I think that's like the Stones kind of thing. Um, sure. So a, a large arena band, I think, is somewhere between like 15 and 30 people are going to be traveling. Um, and out of those, we usually estimate about three to five of them would be using our software... Uh, they're the people that are, uh, and, and there was a, there's been a, there's been sort of a, an evolution of how people use the software too. Which it started off there's three or four people they do all of the data entry and then the output of that is all of these just sheets of paper that they print and then they post up on the walls of the venue. So essentially the crew and the band don't have to like think about anything. They just know right next to the stage there's going to be a sheet of paper that tells me where I need to be and what time tomorrow I need to wake up and be in the lobby of the hotel. Like literally, the tour manager is like a babysitter, and sure. all of those people just they they only have to think about what that next step that they have to do. Once they get to the venue, they know what to do. They know how to set up their gear and all that stuff. But they need to be told like what time they need to come back to tear it down. They need to be told like the most important thing I think they need to know is what time they need to be in the lobby that next morning before the bus leaves. And as long as <laughs> yeah, they can yeah, get themselves yeah. there, then everything else flows yeah. from that. So. Uh, but now we have, you know, now that we're doing mobile stuff, so the cool part about it now is, uh, this is really funny, Weird Al actually um, uses our software, and he did this totally, um, uh, just out of the blue, we just saw this radio interview, and he was talking about it, and he said that the tour book, which our software prints uh, the tour books, if you've ever seen one of those before, and uh, but he said they called it the Book of Lies, and because it was never accurate, uh, so, so the mobile thing is uh, the mobile thing is like real time. So now the tour manager basically just feeds all the data in through the desktop client, and then all the band and the crew just have the mobile apps. They're essentially like a reader, and that just tells them you know that same stuff like what time they need to be in the lobby you know the next day, and you know what time lunch is, and all those kinds of things. So everybody just has their one little bit of info that they need. Uh, except the tour manager who has to know everything. Right. So so kind of coming back to the to where we were in the story. So this this started out as a FileMaker database that was written by this guy and then how did it get oh. from from there to to where you are now? Right, right. So yeah, so he wrote the initial file. Please tell me you started from scratch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if only. Yeah. So we so we uh so before I was in, uh, in the company it was uh Ian and Paul is the other um partner uh ian was just um giving this database away for free uh and you know because obviously dave matthews is a pretty successful band and he ran into a lot of tour managers and they were always really impressed with what he had done it really did look very slick i have to say it It was very impressive for a filemaker database and uh it had um he started to get so many users that people started wanting more features and support to the point where uh you know, it wasn't just something that he really could or wanted to do just for fun. And so they decided to start a company and start selling it. And so they did that for about, I think, three years before I came along. And uh, then when I joined, um, they decided they were going to do this major push uh, and get outside investment and create a new corporation and all that stuff. And then uh, we had been sharing office space this whole time. So uh, they... Uh, asked me to join in as a partner and bring my uh, employees along for the ride. And so we just kind of merged into one company. 
So how many developers do you have working? We have, uh, right now we're down two developers. So we, I basically have, uh, there's three of us developing, one okay. QA, two developers, and then uh, I think we have nine people altogether in the office right now. Uh, we were sure. we were up to twelve at one point, but uh, we're actually hiring. So somebody, uh, <laughs> a little plug, get in touch if you feel like it. Now, how many uh, how many clients do you guys have? Do you, can you give us some idea of who's using your stuff? Um, yeah, I can. A few of the clients that we use that use it. Um, let me think of some big, impressive names to give you guys. Uh, the Eagles, I guess that's pretty big and impressive. Yep. Um, one of my personal favorites, uh, Vampire Weekend. I like those guys uh, a lot. Excellent. Um, God, just a whole. Now, do you, do you guys have a lot of competition, or is there a, there have to be other people who do something similar? No. There are two. Uh, uh, there are at least two others that we view as competition. Um, yeah. But they are all of the others are are web based, online only. Uh, we're the only one okay. that's offline. And at least for our customer base, the, at the moment, I don't know how much longer this is going to be the case, but at the moment, offline capability is still pretty huge because, you know, they spend so much of their time on the road and on a plane, and that's when they do the bulk right. of their work. So running offline um, is one of our, you know, big advantages right now. Um, right. So, but then the other, you know, the, the, the other... Uh, companies that do have online versions of their stuff i've looked at them before and um i do think that they're pretty slick uh they're more geared towards um kind of diy management maybe maybe getting into the club band type of thing they're not quite um they're a little bit more simplified as far as uh, their user base so i think they have a much bigger user base than um, potential than we do but we have the just level of detail that the bigger bands require. Well, you, you, I remember, Jason, you were telling me this this story about um, how at some point you guys made it such that the individual client, like if, 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 the, if, a, if a client actually asks for this, you guys can even design a sort of customized, you know, private little mini site for that band where they can guide um, individual venues f- like to, to confirm rider details and like you know receipt you know confirm receipt of certain documents and stuff like that you're still doing that sort um of you know what actually that's a it's funny that you mentioned that we we did have something it doesn't really work with our current product um yeah we did have something that they would send out to the venues and then it would monitor you know that to make sure that they had received it and stuff like that um yeah anyway we we do have some sort of plans to uh, integrate that stuff but it's uh it's top secret, so I can't go into the oh, details. Well, is, is is the is the, is the stuff that you're doing now? I mean, is it is it uh, feature additions or is it bug fixes mostly that you guys <clears throat> spend your time on? Um, I'd say it's about fifty fifty. Not exactly bug fixes, but more like I would say feature requests. Um, we we do what okay. we do. What's called a not to get like too like um, geeky here, but um, it's like an iterative development cycle. So okay. we basically just have a release every two weeks. So we do small releases. and You're like Google Chrome. Yeah, is, that's what they're doing, right? 
I don't, yeah. I don't know how often. They, they update every, like, 12 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I, I <laughs> swear to God. Like, it's, sometimes it feels like they update twice a day. I was reading, I was but, reading this website of this guy who maintained this database of uh, compatibility of like of you know browser compatibility stuff and he was yeah and he went on this long rant about how chrome it was just impossible to do that anymore because they release so frequently but uh anyway yeah it's a whole it's a whole um it's a whole programming like methodology that's like the buzzword um called agile development which essentially is just um not doing the 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 opposite of that is called is like uh, i guess you could say uh big design up front it's like uh uh, what would that be? B D U F, um, which is essentially, yeah, that's that's actually a thing. Really, that's actually a thing. Oh my! God. Yeah, it stands for big design up front. It basically is the opposite of agile, which means big design up front is you plan everything out, every tiny tiny detail, and uh, it's more like, I guess maybe the Microsoft style. I guess you know where you release something right. every ten years, a new browser. <laughs> Um, but that seems like it's almost <laughs> impossible for any sort of small company to, especially one with any sort of competition, to play those, play that game. You know, yeah, everything's playing out three years. You have no idea what's going to happen six months from now. Everything's, I know, everything's got to two years. Everything's got to move so fast. It's kind of annoying. Um, yeah, it feels like yeah, if it feels like if I go offline for a week, then I miss some whole new technology that's coming out now, which is which is totally frustrating and sometimes you just get the feeling as a programmer at least you just get the feeling that you just you're just constantly falling behind at least that's what i feel like uh, all the time even though i you know i constantly read uh, read up on stuff but uh, it's just impossible to keep up but yeah anyway so the agile development thing is um you know release on a regular cycle and it's geared towards um the release schedule you do what you can according to the schedule versus uh um you know, saying, "Here's what we're going to build, and it'll take as long as it takes." Those are the, those are the two different. Uh, right. Um, yeah, can I ask you a quick question? Do you do you worry about competition from cheaper labor places from India, China? You know, developers. I know a lot of people who do say web development, and they have people down in Brazil who can do it at half the cost. So a lot of ad agencies are having their stuff done, you know, off off site. That's yeah. You know, that's. <clears throat> I would say five years ago, especially when I was doing the consulting, I started to get really nervous about that, and I decided. Well, there were two. There are two sort of thing, two sort of points that I guess. The first is that I just thought, well, um, running a consulting company, I'm going to just utilize the same resources that other people have access to. So I'm going to become familiar with managing an offshore team, uh, and sure. which I did. Do some. I dabbled in it a little bit with some experiments, and I found, you know, ways that I could make it work for me. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I could capitalize on that just like anyone else could. Uh, and being a programmer, um, I think you're able to utilize that kind of resource really well. So I think if you're a smart programmer, if you're a smart consultant, you can utilize that because, you know, if you know how to design software, you can put those guys to work for you. Um, Whereas if you don't know how to design software, you can spin your wheels, and those guys yeah. will design to spec. But if you don't know what you're doing, but if your spec sucks, right. exactly. Yeah, if you if you don't ask for the right thing, then they'll just keep keep giving. Yeah, you so you can you know it's yeah, yeah. exactly. So, but but it's funny yeah. in in the photo world, the new thing is sending stuff off to India to do masks. Have you yeah, gotten any emails of this kind of stuff? No, that's interesting. Uh, Dan, have you seen this? 
I, I haven't seen it, but I know um, one of my friends, uh, Kent, uh, he has a long-standing client um, that's this company that does, like, trophies and medals and awards and stuff like that up in yeah. Westchester somewhere. And he does the bulk of their catalog photography. So, you know, he'll, and, you know, shooting reflective glass, shiny things requires some skill, uh, which Kent is a, obviously he's a, he's a master at doing that because he's been doing it for, for years. Um, but now he, he, he doesn't, it's cheaper for them, for the client to, to not have him do the clipping anymore. So what, sure. what, what he does is he basically just gives them his finished tiffs uh, and then they, they have a, a contract with the, this company out in India that yeah. just basically, tra- you know, cuts everything out for them. And, you know, from what I understand, they do it good, fast, and cheap. So Yeah, they do it. Cr- it's supposedly crazy cheap. I mean, you send yeah. stuff over and half an hour for $5, they'll cut out whatever the hell you want. You know? Yeah, it's, it's kind uh, of... That's, so. Yeah, it is, it's crazy, but it's interesting that, like, it, that... Uh, Jason, you say that you know if you have if you know what you want and you're very specific about it, they can build it. But you need to know your plans have to be good. Yeah, exactly right. You can. I, I've had a couple of experiences where, what I, in software, you know, generally things are broken down into small little pieces, little modules and stuff. And so, if I have a module that's um, particularly, say, boring or math oriented or just some kind of specialty. And you can really slice up, you know, like that masking thing is perfect because it's just so concrete. There's no artistic decision-making on their part, really. Um, And it's small enough that you can detail, like, literally every aspect of it. Um, If you just tried it, if you were just a company and you just went to them and you just said, hey, I want to build this thing and I kind of have this idea, I mean, (laughs) you could wind up with it. It's hard to say what you could wind up with. You could wind up with anything. I mean, that could be the case with any programmer. But especially when you have a language barrier and you have middle management in between the two of you, um, right? You know, you could really you could wind up not saving money, or you could wind up with just a really you know piece of garbage. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> yeah, I wonder. You know, I wonder if that was a big, if all of that was a big fear five years ago, but now people are realizing. Yes, there are times to use that, and then there are times that having a team here, even if it costs five times as much, ends up saving you in the long I run. I think. Yeah, I think there's been like a. There's been um, both both are valid for different purposes, kind of thing. So yeah. now it's no longer like let's just replace our whole IT team with uh, <laughs> stuff. I mean, there's there's certain parts of the IT world that I think are much more susceptible to their business going overseas, like uh, network administration, anything that can be done sure. remote, like support. Uh, but yeah, my particular area. This was the other point that I was going to make is at least five years ago, I think that I was feeling that and a lot of developers were scared about it. But now now that I tend to be more on the hiring side as compared to like looking for work, I'm usually looking for programmers. Um, yeah. And at least at the moment, they are very, very hard to find locally, uh, at least in Chicago. I mean, I put, I put ads on um, several you know big job sites and... Just to give you an example, we put one out for an administrative assistant uh, on Craigslist, and we got about 350 responses from people. And I sure. put one out uh, for this uh, this programming job that we had, and I got two responses. And one of them was completely not qualified for the job, and then the other one was looking for a telecommuting job. So we essentially got no responses. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Game. Yeah, it's, <laughs> so it's tough. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's good to be uh, it's good to be in the uh, 
right now at least the it doesn't seem to be affecting uh, software developers. Go to school for CS. Kids. Yeah, at least yeah, at the moment. That's right. Yeah, Crazy. easy to get a job. Um, so let's take a, a little t- change of course here uh, from programmer talk. Uh, if there's anyone still listening, <laughs> oh, uh, poor boring people. <laughs> um, and let's talk a little bit about more of the the creative side of what uh, what Jason's been working on. Um, <laughs> I guess he, uh, another another aspect of the Baldwin brothers that uh, we didn't mention, uh, as far as far as our live performances go or went, uh, was uh, a visual uh, video presentation. Uh, when I was in the band, um, just to kind of fill in some of the holes here, we 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 evolved from using uh, the samplers for the looped playback, uh, in, in an effort to simplify things and also to sort of improve the 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 flow of the show and we wound up um essentially creating our own uh video content um which was obviously edited to be in sync along with the with the songs and our shows were actually driven by dvds uh which we would build ourselves um so the way it would work is we we actually had a nice little rack mount set up with uh a dvd player and TJ would would drive that since he had to start a couple of the songs, and the video track, you know, the, the video out uh, of the DVD player would go to uh, a projector, which we provided and would you know rig up to the ceiling, uh, and then we'd also put up this this big ass screen behind us, and, uh, and then the audio tracks uh, of the DVD were our playback tracks and our click tracks, which we would then you know send out to the proper you know headphone mix or house mix or what have you. <coughs> Um, and then, and then Jason and I, I think, um, we, we shared, I, I think Jason probably did more than I did, um, uh, video creation duty <laughs> and, um, and, and yeah, and as it turns out, Jason has had quite, uh, quite a history of, of making things, uh, uh, in, in the moving picture realm. Would that be, would you say that's, that's accurate, Jason? Yeah. Surprisingly, when I look back on it, yeah, I'm starting to develop a bit of a catalog of stuff. Yeah, which, which is. Did you start with video toaster? <laughs> you know what? Actually, this is this is a, sort of my one of my secret shames is that um, <laughs> my college degree is actually not in computer science; uh, it's in video production, which I don't think a lot of people. Every hey, mine's in music. So, nice, you know. <laughs> it's it's funny you meet people under a certain circumstance and you sort of pigeonhole them like I've I've got friends that I've met who uh if you're one of those people who does more than one thing uh you know I've got people that I've met through programming and they just think of me as the computer nerd and then uh people that I've met through film you know that that don't that never knew anything about me being in a band or all this stuff and uh so it's funny uh yeah people just uh they think of you in one way depending on the context in which they met you I think mm-hmm. sure I can definitely relate to that. Yeah, um, but yeah, so I've been lately doing going back to. I always wanted to do film, and I could just never afford to do it. Um, and then right around the time when you know now I have the cushy programming job, I could afford to buy some film stuff. <laughs> and then uh, all of a sudden, those all the prices of all the film gear just went down the toilet because nobody shoots film anymore for indie stuff. Yeah. Well, the prices of the film gear went down, but the prices of film and film processing went. Yeah. Up. Still. Yeah. Exactly. It's still. Uh, pretty pricey to shoot on film which i've been doing but yeah like everybody else i've kind of joined the whole dslr uh revolution and i've been doing you know, a bunch of stuff th- with that this past weekend i was down in uh austin texas and they have this uh theater called the alamo draft house 
I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this place. But the great thing about it is that, uh, well, first of all, you can eat. They serve food there. Like, they, like, deliver food to your seat. Nice. Which is really great. Uh, they uh, they use 4K Sony projectors, hmm. which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also have an absolute no talking, no texting, no cell phone, no nothing policy. Oh, I heard If you're this. there, they'll pull you out and kick you out and don't give you a refund. Somebody made a YouTube video of yes. like, this voicemail that this they got. Woman, yeah, yeah, this woman yelling. It was actually, the, I think the CEO of the place like put it up there because he was like, yeah. <laughs> and the woman was like, I do this everywhere. And he's just like, you're not doing it at my place. Get the hell out. Um, so anyway, I went because I had to give it a shot and I went and saw super eight, which the only reason I bringing it up is because they're shooting super eight, uh, which is just, it's just amazing to me that these independent kids would be using an actual film camera back then, you know, to do, I mean, I don't, of course, what else would they use? But it's just, it's just, it was kind of fun watching them load rolls of, of Kodak film into a, into an eight millimeter camera. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, It's funny. I, I've been shooting um you know 16 millimeter and then i upgraded to super 16 which is like a sort of a you know almost a legit shooting i guess total legit shooting uh format it totally is the uh the uh the station agent was filmed in super yeah, 16. a couple of academy award winners the uh hurt locker was shot on super 16 and uh the wrestler yep. and a bunch of great films um but anyway uh so i've had people that are in film school. I've been meeting a lot of young people, which I just think is fantastic. Uh, they just, I really like, really get you energized to do stuff, you know, as, as you're, as I get older. Sure. And so I'm just really excited, like meeting young people and all these people coming out of the film schools, at least here in Chicago, they're like totally in awe of shooting on film, uh, and sort of intimidated by the gear and everything, which I was too. It's because, because you can really, you know, spend a lot of money and just really like screw it up. Um, but so I kind of started meeting these people because they were into doing film and just, there's not many people doing it, uh, you know, at kind of like a, an indie level anymore. And so I've, I've sort of became this like film guru. But the funny thing is, is that, you know, not that many years ago, this was just like, this would have been your home movie camera and just everybody did. It wasn't even like some kind of fancy thing that you had to, you know, have knowledge to do. It's just like you're, you're, grandfather probably would have you know been shooting on a film camera and all that kind of stuff it it wasn't such a big deal so it's really not that hard once you kind of get the you know get past a few fundamentals i uh, recently found some some eight millimeter uh reels at my mother's house because she's moving of like her graduation i think part of her wedding but we don't have a projector to try them on so it's like i gotta get them brought somewhere to transfer or something yeah yeah that's expensive but you can get a projector cheap and just do it myself yeah. and just project it against the wall and get out my 5D2. You know, that works. That totally works. You can do um <clears throat> if you're not looking for like feature quality though, there's all those guys that just are, you know, they're called like, you know, specialmemories.com or whatever. I don't know. Don't go there. Who knows <laughs> yeah, what that yeah, is? Yeah. But uh <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they're just like send us your home movie and we put it on a DVD for you type of thing, you know. Sure. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. pretty cheap. <laughs> Uh-huh, that's funny. Uh, so tell us a little bit about um, some of the more nuts and bolts, man. What was your um, what was your like your first um, film camera? Or what what are some of the projects that you've been working on? I mean, uh, sure, yeah. This this is all about me. I really like this uh, podcast, yeah, man. man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the guest. <laughs> um, so yeah, I got a. I did a bunch of research on film cameras, and um, there's a bunch of brands. For anybody that's a film geek, there's 
there's a few brands that are uh, you know really well known, and then there's a few like lesser known brands. And I got one of the lesser known ones because I couldn't afford the known brand. So it's a an Eclair ACL camera, which um, it's a really cool camera. It's like a French uh, French made one, and when you say Eclair, you mean like the food? Yeah, it's just like the food Eclair, except it's a camera maker uh, that went out of business like in the 80s so these cameras are like 30 years old it's pretty crazy uh and, so and, wait, wait which which what would the popular one be that you would have wanted if you yeah. had money to burn uh i would have gotten like an an Aeroflex probably you know that's like the that's that's okay. the one that they're going to be using for hollywood movies uh okay those are the camera that i got at the time was about two grand and the uh the Aeroflex ones you have to spend at least like probably 15 16 grand to get in uh, Whoa. So yeah, I just didn't have that kind of dough to uh, to spend a, <laughs> well, yeah. on a hobby. I mean, not if you're. I mean, you're, you're just screwing around. I mean, if you're making money, that's one. Thing, yeah, just to... exactly. But the prices, but now we're all going down the toilet. The prices, though. So I mean, I'm. I still sort of think you know I might if they really just tank, then I'm, I might pick up one of those cameras. Well, so how much were these Eclair cameras at their at their prime? Would you uh, say? I saw some promo advertisement in the '80s. I think that the price was. Uh, I want to say it was twenty five thousand bucks in the eighties. So eighties dollars that would have been pretty expensive. Whoa, Jesus! So you're saying the cameras that you have right now that you picked up for like two thousand dollars or less yeah. were like worth twenty five grand, like twenty thirty. Yeah. So, wow. Well, Dan, think about it. Think about like a, a, a nice Nikon, the high end super professional film camera in nineteen eighty. Yeah, I guess. I bet, not, would have been a few thousand dollars. Now you could probably buy it for 120 I mean, bucks. I remember when the Nikon F3 was out, and that was like, you know, $1,200 or yeah. just Okay, a, and how like much would it cost now? Now it's like, you know, I don't know, $300. Yeah. Um, well, the price the price has gone. This is what sucks is that I did this, what, when was that, three years ago? Or maybe something like that. And uh, since the DSLR just, just took over the indie scene altogether, there's no nobody wants to shoot film anymore. Uh, and the prices of these cameras just went down. I think that you could pick up an Eclair ACL on eBay for. You could probably pick up one for five hundred bucks if you if you uh, snatched it up. So they're really going down in the price. Wow. Yeah. Um, so it's a good time to you know buy a camera. Is it hard to find the sixteen millimeter film? No, it's not hard at all. It's really easy. Um, it's super easy to. Yeah. It's it's funny. I thought it was going to be really hard. It's just well, it's just the the hardest part about it is just figuring out how to pay for it it's because it's expensive but it's i figured it out and it's about a hundred dollars a minute when that's when it's all said and done really? 100 bucks a minute and so break that down for us so when you when when you how does that how does but, that it, but that's not that's deceiving too because a 60 minute movie so you could say oh well um that's six thousand bucks Right, but you're shooting five times right or, or ten times that to edit like a, yeah like a six to one ratio is like a film you know that's that's considered right. like very very minor because you'd you'd say um, we had one scene. Most likely, you would want to shoot an establishing shot, um, you know, a close up or like an over the shoulder of one person talking and over the shoulder of the other person talking. That would just be a simple. That would be like the most simple kind of shot. Right. So that's three shots right there of the whole scene, and then you figure. Are they going to get like even more than one take? Do the, do the actors get sure. like one take only? So if, if each of those shots they only got two takes, uh, then that's six uh, times the footage right there, and you're only going to that's going to get whittled down to you know a sixth of that what you just shot. So 
yeah you might. Do, you, do, do you have any idea what it costs to shoot 35 now uh, I don't know the prices of that but I think it is close to, I think everything is just about double the 30 right you, you need more film for one thing like all the all the numbers are different like uh, right. 16 millimeter you get either a hundred foot or 400 foot uh, okay. spools and a, a 100 foot is like roughly three minutes and a 400 one is done like roughly 12 minutes of footage that you can shoot and sure. i think with 35 that the 400 is the small one and then a thousand is the big one now yeah. how do how do you uh you you shoot you get the film back i'm sure i'm assuming you do you have to send it out of town or do they have stuff in chicago that'll do i it? use yeah mm-hmm. i use this place in town in chicago called astro lab but there's a bunch of great places online that that specialize it uh, in doing 16 millimeter, and some of them have really great prices. So essentially, I just send in, I shoot the film, I send them the negative, and then I could, if I wanted to, get a print back. But since I know I'm just going to immediately send it into, uh, go to digital and edit, uh, you know, right. in Final Cut, I don't really care to get the film back. So wait, your 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 uh, your hundred dollars a minute includes transfer. That's everything. Yeah. The okay. and it, it's it's hard to figure out the prices too. That's what's really confusing, I think, to people first getting into film because you buy the film, and that's like a fixed price. So it's I think it's like forty bucks for a hundred foot. We'll just go with a hundred foot, which is three minutes. So you got forty bucks essentially for three minutes. Uh, and then you have to get that processed, which is just like getting your film developed, you know, at any lab. Mm-hmm. Once you get it developed, you have a negative, which of course you can't do anything with the negative. Uh, you could get a work print made that you could show on a projector, just like getting a print made of a, you know, a still fo- uh, still photograph. But sure. if you're just going to go to straight to digital, then the scanners can scan from the negative, and so that's the cheapest way to do it is that you just scan from the negative. And then the scanning is where the price really gets wacky because it's usually charged by the hour of the guy doing it, not the hour of the footage. So it, okay. So you can get all kinds of different transfers. Like one, you can actually say you want to physically be there at the lab because it becomes very artistic at that stage because that's the first stage of color correction is done when they transfer it to digital. And so a lot of people will want to be there during that transfer stage but you pay a lot more if you want to sit there that's called a supervised transfer and then uh i always usually just do the cheapest one which is that they just cram it in whenever they have some spare time and uh you know i just i just hope for the best on the transfer uh but now the the footage they send you what what resolution and quality is that so you yeah again there that's where it just gets to all these options you can specify all kinds of stuff and i'm I'm sort of a simpleton when it comes. Once it gets to that level, there's just a huge amount of, of options that you can choose that are, you know, geared towards people who are, you know, have been making Hollywood movies and are very, very knowledgeable. Uh, I basically just ask for um, Apple ProRes files, and I don't even really know what the exact, um, you know, technical details of those are. But I basically just say I want a ProRes file, and that's what they give me. And I usually just um, give them a hard drive so essentially i will take all my negatives in you know dump it off at astro lab with a hard drive and then a couple weeks later they'll give me my hard drive back and all my footage is on there as pro res excellent yeah and i mean th- i mean anything you're you're going to output it out to digitally is going to be i mean at your level 1080 or lower right so 
It's not like you're putting out 2K stuff, right? Yeah, to anybody. The only way that would, yeah, the only way that would happen is probably if you wanted to have it projected, you know, on film at festivals, which. There's not really much sure. of a need to do that, but then you would... Right. You, but theoretically, you can send a digital file to somebody and they'll make a print from the digital file? Uh, yeah. And then that's a whole. That's like the whole process all over again. That's very expensive as well. Sure. But I think these days, a lot of the theaters, because I've been doing some festival screenings and stuff, and um, a lot of them will just take a Blu-ray disc. So I've just been sure. burning it as a Blu-ray for projection. But yeah. The digital projectors, I'll tell you, that when I saw Super 8 last this weekend, it looked so freaking good. At four, like a 4K projector. It yeah. looked amazing. No, nah, that that film was really well put together. I, yeah, I mean it's beautiful, you know. And uh, well, now you have a you have a digital SLR now. What what did we say? A 7D? Right. Yeah, 7D. So, how do you compare the footage of the two? I I love the 7D because it doesn't cost anything to shoot, but I honestly hate it. I hate the way it looks. Um, huh. I hate all the digital cameras, really. I really like the film so much that I wish I could always shoot on film, but it's just um, it's costly. But, you know, actually, well, you probably know, you know, tons about, you know, shooting film versus digital. It's just the, the sure. level of exposure that you've got. Um, and I think it, I think it kind of... This is the funny thing I think about film. Everybody has this mistaken impression that it's much harder to shoot on film. And for a certain bit of mechanical stuff it is, but actually it's so much more forgiving that you can really sure. you can really mess things up and they come out just looking incredible. And even if you yeah. even if you really mess something up, sometimes the the mistake winds up looking really incredible. Yeah. Uh, film film has all kinds of latitude that digital does not have. Shooting digital is like shooting positives. It's like shooting chrome, yeah. which is, you know, slides, which is actually much harder to do than shooting negative film. Yeah, because you get what you get. Yeah. I mean, that's yep. it. <laughs> so, yeah. so I've been... And if you're yeah. off by half a stop in either direction, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, so I've been really, really struggling since I learned on film. Uh, I just had all this leeway with exposure, and as soon as I switched to digital, I found, like, that I wasn't very good at expo- at lighting or something, you know. So I've I've really struggled with just trying to get you know great exposure, and a lot of times I've been really frustrated, especially you know going outside on a sunny day and this, the sky is just blown out. Whereas on the film it would be like beautiful blue with clouds, uh, just things sure. like that. So you know, and it's part of probably just um, you know me learning to be a better photographer as well and, and not having figured it all out yet. Yeah, no, but there, I think there's also something to be said. I mean, at the end of the day, the sensor that's inside, you know, the 7D and, and some of these lower end DSLRs. I mean, you can even say the same thing about the 5D. Um, the way the, these things are, are, you know, processing the video, um, not stills, but, you know, the dynamic range just due to compression and some of the other some of the other things that are happening there, you know, on the fly. They have to throw some of that stuff away, you know, because they're not. You know, they're not really that beefy. Yeah, but the, I don't know about that because, I mean, look, there's people who are serious, serious videographers who are using these things because they have better results on those than they do, uh, you know, on any of their digicams, you know? Well, well, when you're comparing it to, you're comparing it to a, a camcorder, but yeah. what I'm, what I'm talking about is, is a more, I think a more apt analogy would be comparing it to something like 
uh, like a RED camera or um, an RE, the new RE well, Alexa, sure. you know, right. which are, you know, essentially... Which are 10 times the price. Right. But they're also designed to have that dynamic range yep. and, you know, they, but, they, they essentially shoot what would be the equivalent of, of raw files yep. where you can pull that kind of... I, I just to you know stand up for digital SLRs doing video. You got to remember these are the first generations that oh, were doing these things. Of course, of course. My guess is that the 5D Mark III or whatever the heck comes out in a few months, yeah, will probably blow away what we have now. Oh, you know? I sure hope so. I should hope so. Yeah, it's just you know it's interesting though, uh, Jason. Like you said that these things, it's you could shoot as much as you want. So if you are shooting with a Red camera or the Sony equivalent. Um, as a filmmaker, you just have so many options that you didn't have before because you can shoot as much as you want. Right. Yeah. That's. Th- you could try things without having to worry about the cost. Right. The, the first know? time, the the first, the first project that I did really when I sort of started this kind of career, if you will, of of making videos and stuff. Uh, actually, I, I take that back. The very first one that I did, uh, we sh- we spent like quite a bit of money, shot all of this stuff, and uh, and then. It was all ruined, completely ruined. Like, not one frame came out. Uh, so it, it was a very expensive, costly mistake. The camera was dif- was sure. malfunctioning, as it turned out. Um, oh, and you did, yeah. Drag. So, yeah, it was it was what was called losing loop, which means the loop in the uh, film would, would go away and the uh, film is getting dragged through the gate. So it just looks like a big, big blur of vertical lines going down the... <laughs> instead of any like actual yeah. still images yeah yeah but uh Ouch. but yeah when i uh so i did a couple of projects on film and uh then i got my camera and the first thing that i did was this little short with some uh actor friends and uh i felt like i was cheating when we were doing it i was like this is so easy i couldn't believe how easy it was but then the footage i didn't think looked as good so it in right. a way it was you can you can shoot a lot but I think you still have to take the same amount of care. You have to take more care, I sure. think, um, when you're doing it. Really, you have to reduce the you, know, you have to reduce the the contrast that you've got showing up on the screen. So I think the lighting is just way harder. Um, and you really spend a lot of time. And I think for professionals, the reason why they still shoot on film is because the cost of the film is is not really the biggest factor when you've got sure. 100 people in a location locked down and stuff like that. You know, an hour spent lighting it costs more than than you know the film costs sure yeah of course i you know it's funny i was talking to our friend uh dan and i's friend claude and he was saying that you know a lot of these people will shoot with reds and then they'll take a 5d2 and put it places that you would never put a red camera because god forbid it gets messed up it's three thousand dollars not all right thirty thousand dollars yeah crash so they'll stick they'll stick a 5d2 underneath a car that's going above it you know that kind of stuff yeah like the crash crash um, camera they call those yeah and the, and they'll they'll intercut it with red 4k footage and it looks fine because you know it's it's usually like a second and a half of footage that they actually will use and whatnot um but it's just kind of funny the idea that you could get disposable cameras, you know, or set up three of them on a bar so that you're getting simultaneous footage of three different angles, all in one shot, you know, that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I've seen I've um, seen the same thing with um, doing those like matrixy rigs or whatever. Exactly, oh, bullet yeah. cam, whatever. Yeah. They call it. yeah, it's neat stuff. You know, it's just uh, it's it's interesting to see where it all goes. And look, yeah. if these if they get better at this kind of stuff or or expand the dynamic range so that they can then 
put a, a, a tighter curve at the bottom and at the top so it, it simulates film more. It's funny because like digital recording for years when it was sixteen when everything was sixteen bit, it's like they they were they were they were limited by the fact that they only had whatever like ninety dB of of dynamic range. But the point at, at the point at which you go to twenty four. You can you can do stuff on either side in in you know to to model analog. You lose some of your stuff in your digital, but like you can model analog perfectly within. It's such a big digital space that then you can model what would have been existing in analog systems. Yeah, Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I totally. I think of that all the time because I think video is like ten years behind audio as far as it's it's moving yeah. to the digital realm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. this is the exact same. All the same stuff that people are saying about film is exactly the same stuff that I remember people saying about recording. Like, oh, I'm never going to record on digital. Exactly. Sounds CDs sound terrible. Blah blah blah. Yeah. The the yeah. technology is going to get to the point where digital looks looks great. But I think the film will just be purely an aesthetic choice for people. Sure. At that point, I, I honestly hope that you know, from a photographic point of view. I mean, you go to B and H now, and the film department is one guy and like five feet of stuff behind him, where it was twenty-five feet of stuff four years ago. Yeah, um, I worry about that too. And, and not, not having Kodak is not Kodak's like on the edge of dying, so it's kind of it's scary. It's sad, really. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. I definitely, I'm um, definitely nervous about yeah, just like Kodak going out of business or not having places to develop your footage and stuff like that. Sure. Like, which. Yeah, which would be a drag. Yeah, I know it's, it's you, sad. My camera, um, in some ways, like I don't think about it because it looks, you know, when you look at it, it's like, wow, it's a pretty, you know, fancy looking. You know, anybody that saw it would think, wow, that's a pretty crazy looking camera. But um, you're talking about the Eclair? yeah. I mean, it looks it looks you know like a movie camera, especially with all the, you know, when you when you have like a matte box and and follow focus and all those kinds of you know support gear. You, you actually. You have all that stuff. I have like sort of you know indie versions of all that stuff. Um, <laughs> the mat, yeah. Nice. I mean, part of it, it it looks cool, but parts of it, you know. At first, I always wanted to put all that shit on there just because of uh, you know it looked really cool. But then finally, I figured out it's a real pain, and you put it on when you need it, so you need it for certain yeah. things. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> the point being that the camera itself is, I think, by all like uh, you know legal definitions, is probably considered an antique. Sure. Know, which which is sort of annoying to me. Yeah. Um, well, um, so so Jason, just sort of kind of coming coming to an end here. Um, as far as like um, final thoughts and stuff, any like what? Maybe give us a quick summary of any of the cool stuff that you're working on now. Uh, any any uh, projects? Uh, Wait, I've, I have one last promote? question, Dan. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I I want I want your 20 second thoughts on Final Cut Seven versus Final Cut Ten. Oh wow. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, I haven't tried it yet, so this is just based on the, what I've read. But it sounds like it's okay. It sounds like at the moment of this recording, it's too buggy. It sounds too buggy for me because I've heard it's crashing a lot. But I'm excited to try it. I'm, I don't think I'm gonna hate on it. Uh, okay. I'm excited to try it. I think it could work for me, but it, just from what. But you're not going to or from tape at all. You're using all digital files all the time anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, okay. you're also not a multicam kind of guy. Well, that, that uh, yeah, I have do, I've done some live shooting, so that could mess me up too. But I, those things they've said they're going to fix. They said they're going to put them back in. So all mm. the th- that's why I don't think I could use it right now. But I think they said they're going to put those things in. So I think when version one point one comes out or whatever, I'm eager to try it. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to hate on it. So. 
Okay, no. that's fair. I just I was just wondering. Okay, Dan, sorry you can continue. No, no, I was just um I'm just giving Jason a chance here to pimp some of his uh some of his stuff. Uh yeah, sure. Glad to. Um so I have a film that's just finishing up a festival run. It's just a short film called Tall Tale Tanner and um at Curious Three it's spelled out Curious T H R E E dot com. Um you can check out all of my movies and videos and stuff that I've done, anybody that's interested. And, uh, yeah, I'm working on another. I'm finishing up editing on another short, so that'll probably be done in the next uh, month or two. Awesome. Yeah. Excellent. And what about – now, you also you, – you told me you inadvertently created this, you know, headquarters for Eclair users, right? Is that still the case? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I always <laughs> – I had a very selfish reason for doing that, but uh, it's eclair16.com. I did it because um, uh, I was becoming very annoyed by the um, the antique, like I said, the antique sort of status. People viewing this camera as an antique when you know I had paid a lot of money for it, and uh, <laughs> I want to. Uh, I, ha- I actually wound up with three of them because the only way you can get parts for these things is just by buying more cameras. It's like buying a Yugo. <laughs> and yeah, and I so I had two of them to sell. I sold one already and I have another one that I want to sell and just selfishly I wanted to make a site that made it look like a serious camera that you use for serious modern work and not some, you know, antiquity uh, you know, and so I built the site to uh for to serve that purpose and now I'm like the number one resource for uh Eclair cameras on the web. So uh <laughs> That's I don't hilarious. know what that means. <laughs> I think it's cool. Yeah, it's, it's an um, interesting site. Yeah, Claire16.com. Sweet. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get some um, – we'll, we'll shoot Show an notes. email. Yeah, and we'll put it in our, our notes. Cool. Um, with any other links to stuff that you might uh, think of after we're finished chatting. Um, but, yeah, man. this. So, yeah, uh, just to sort of wrap up here, um, like I said, I've known Jason for a long time, and um, he's into a lot of the same stuff that me and Bill are, although – from a slightly different perspective and I figured some of the folks that listen to uh, what we have to say might be interested in some of the stuff that he's up cool. to. Cool, I hope crazy moving pictures people. <laughs> yeah, I hope I didn't bore your uh, audience too much but uh, thanks for having me on. <laughs> no, for sure. Excellent. We d- it was a good time and uh, we will uh, we will talk to everyone next week. Dan, we're, we're up for next week? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere. Excellent. And uh, if you guys want to get a hold of us, it's uh, at Bill Wadman and at Dan Gottesman on Twitter. Yep. Uh, if you have any suggestions for topics for the show, let us know. If And uh, if you could please go by the iTunes page for Circuitous Conversations and uh, rate us. That would be very nice of you. Yeah, we like that. Uh, yeah, and that I happens. think that's it. Yes. All right, Jason, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, man. Good to talk to you. Likewise. And we will we will talk to you all soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Right. Right on.